Hi, how are you? I just didn't want that it happens again like last time. Maybe I'll get some music going. Oh, hi, Serena, come up. Hi, everyone. Hi, Asia. How are you today? Nice to see you again. Serena. Hello. Hey, yeah, Asia. let's get the music going. Oh my god, I see a red balloon. What? Yeah, I have <laughs> I didn't realize. Somehow I feel like oh my god, already a year went by. Other on the other hand, I feel like it's just been a year, like depends how I see it. Ninety so much ninety nine red balloons. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that would be a nice one too. Hi, Jamie. How was the party? I heard it went well. Uh, it, it did so that's why I'm keeping it everyone's way. <laughs> How's that I volume? Perfect message. Pardon? Perfect message. I can see clearly now. I'm uncoding, unlocking the code of sight. That's right. Karina, happy anniversary as here in Bloom. Oh, thank you. <laughs> it's so funny that people congratulate you for it. Oh, sorry, I didn't know happy anniversary.
Kids Gas. Nice to see you. Long time. Yo. Hey, Kirko. You made it. Heck yeah. Hey, Kirko. What's up with y'all? Okay, we got three minutes. I'm going to play the Johnny Nash version because he wrote that. This was Jimmy Cliff. Hang on. I'll be back. Curated Music Store, Victoria, you're full of surprises. in the meantime. There you <laughs> go. I love it. It's in your honor. Yeah. <laughs> is it a bright sunshiny day where everybody is? <laughs> sure. In our hearts. Okay. Oh, yeah. I'm and about seeing clearly. <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. Seeing clearly today. There it is. Uh yeah, I hope that you had a great day. And thank you so much for coming. Yeah. Thanks, everyone, for coming. Welcome to the Science Society, everyone. And um, I have a red balloon, in case you don't know, Bruce. And uh, because I'm now one year on Clubhouse. And it's so funny. Everyone congratulates me. <laughs> <laughs> so cute. It's a very nice balloon. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, yeah, maybe you come back when you have your red balloon. <laughs> 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 then we can all be happy about it. Anyways, I thank you so much, everyone. Um, and uh, we have today our... I was really looking forward for having Dr. Bruce Hansen here with his work. So, And he said yes and is honoring us with his presence today and with his talk. <laughs> So thank you so much. Um, let me give you a little bit of background information so you all learn a little bit about him. 
And if it's okay, Bruce, then Victoria will <clears throat> ask you a more general uh, interview question, and then the stage is yours for the presentation. Okay. Perfect. Okay, so uh, Dr. Bruce Hansen, he's a professor of psychology and neuroscience at the Department of um, Psychological and Brain Sciences uh, at the Colgate University. Um, and before there, he was their associate professor and assistant professor. And um, he did his um, graduate research at um, um, a teaching assistant at the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences in University of Louisville. And um, he was also a graduate research assistant at the School of Life Sciences at Fudan University, Shanghai, China. China. And um, yeah, he did his postdoctoral research fellow at the McGill Vision Research Unit, Department of Ophthalmology at the McGill University, Montreal, Canada. And um, he received several distinctions um, from the National Science Foundation and James um, S. McDonnell Foundation. And um, yeah, just to name a few, he published um, really interesting papers. And um, yeah, so I'm really happy to introduce you, everyone, to um, Dr. Bruce Hansen. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Victoria, the stage is yours. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah, I was applauding. So Bruce, I you don't have your little you don't have your party hat, but I think you know that when we do that, we're applauding. Yes, I do know that. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, let's get into this. So welcome. Science Society welcomes you, Bruce. We're so excited that you're here and we look forward to learning about your research into the visual pathway and whatever you'd like to share. So my question, um, it's a two-part question, that's okay with you. Mm -hmm. uh, looking back through your life, if you can reflect on a moment or an experience that drew you into the sciences, I find that it's, it really, um, oh, it just, it broadens our experience with the researcher and we can learn a little bit about you too, beyond mm -hmm. your research, you know, maybe a little bit about what makes you, you, because we all have a reason why you know, or, or a time when something happened or that we, you know, a memory that was really special and we just felt like, wow, science, that's, that's where I belong. And so if you could answer that question and then also if you can please share a brief overview of the path that has led you to your current research, then thank you. Yeah, sure. Uh, boy, that's a, that's a tough one. Um, uh, I guess you're thinking about in terms of when it clicked. So, I, you know, I got to go back to undergraduate and thinking about um, my early days there, I was, I was largely interested in clinical psychology, believe it or not. I was enrolled in University of Michigan's um, clinical psychology program. I was doing practicums um, as a part of my coursework. And, you know, I was, I was really excited about it. And I, I thought that's, you know, that was the path that I was going to go down. And there was a, a course I took, oh, geez, it must have been junior year of undergraduate. It was uh, animal behavior. And it wasn't, it wasn't something I was looking forward to taking. It kind of fit my schedule and, you know, it ticked off one of the requirements and I was like, okay, you know, I'll do this. 
And boy, I got in there and it just, it, it totally just changed my perspective on everything and the power of the ability to understand animal models and predicting their behaviors and, and understanding how all of these operations are working so much so that I could go out, you know, and just walking around and, and see animals interact and I could, you know, understand what it was they were doing. And it just, it just changed my mind. And I, it got me really excited about um, the mechanisms behind the behaviors. I started getting more interested in cognition. Um, my thesis work, you know, I kind of gravitated towards understanding, um, Alzheimer's, early onset Alzheimer's and object recognition. Um, and I got really into that. And as, as I was digging into that literature and that, that you know, that study was, was primarily focused on understanding um, the flexibility of the systems or the rigidity of recognition systems and involved a lot of manipulation of visual information. Um, and then when I dove into that literature, I, I was struck by, you know, how much we knew at the cellular level, how, you know, individual neurons and visual cortex process information, but understanding how they're all working together, I was surprised at how little there was. And so that, that really just kind of motivated me and, and carried me through graduate school. So now I'm kind of talking about, you know, your second question of following that path. Um, so I, I, you know, I immersed myself at University of Louisville about understanding, you know, basic early level visual phenomena, gain control, um, orientation tuning, detection paradigms, things like that. Um, and that carried me to McGill and, and I concentrated more on that, but I started to expand out and get more interested in how those processes um, connect to high level representations and understanding, you know, the, the transformations between an early stage analysis to a, a more of a high level one. Um, and that, that pretty much kind of brought me to, to where, where I am now. Thank you. It's, I, it's just such an honor to get to hear your reflections and, and your own personal pathway. And we all really appreciate getting to learn a little bit more about, you know, what has motivated you. And, and I love that story about, um, you know, that you took the class and you weren't really excited about it. <laughs> But you had an open mind and look where it led you. Yeah, yeah. It's a great lesson forever. So, yeah. So thank you. And upon that, um, if you're ready, the mic is yours and yeah. you're welcome to dive in. I am. Great. Um, so it, a lot of this is, um, is, is better served with visual examples. So I think Katerina shared a, a link for you all to kind of have a look at those um, slides. I will kind of walk through those when there's something that a little bit more um, abstract, I'll refer to those slides. Um, so if you have those open, that'd be great. Um, I'll give everybody a moment to kind of do that if you haven't already done it. Um, while you're doing that, I'll just kind of open it up generally. So again, you know, kind of reflecting on and building on um, what I was just talking about. Uh, one my, my big passion right now is, is understanding perception um, and trying to understand. So it's kind of a, a two stage sort of analysis. So I'm still very much interested in that early level representation, how physical information in the form of electromagnetic energy is, is transformed into a neural code, um, those early stages of that representation, and then how that early representation informs high level processes, things that enable us to make um, and engage in intelligent behavior. So I'm interested in those transformations that take place from that early representation um, to those later high-level representations. And
One of the neat things about perception, the thing that really gets me excited is, you know, we walk around, we engage in the world around us and, and we like to feel that, you know, our experiences and our perceptions are, are stable. And, and they, I mean, for, for the most part, they are. We get a sense of stability as we're engaging in various actions and things in our environments. And that's a good thing. We don't, we don't want to walk around in a state of confusion. But what's really interesting is the underlying code, the underlying neural code of those stable representations is constantly evolving. It's changing over time. And, you know, the brain isn't, it's not trying to create, you know, a fixed picture. It's not generating a static image in your brain, but it's actually generating something or a representation that's best suited to the goals of the individual in any given moment, depending on what it is that you're trying to do, that underlying neural code will rearrange itself to facilitate um, those particular actions that you're trying to engage in. And so a lot of this, this current work, this particular line of work is interested is understanding that temporal evolution of neural, of that neural code. Um, and so the first step of that was to, you know, develop this technique to try to get a sense of that, to, to quantify um, the temporal dynamics. This is something that's, you know, kind of missing in the literature. There's, you know, over the last 15 years or so, there's been a lot of really, really impressive um, fMRI work. We're doing image reconstruction, decoding, kind of building the representations, kind of getting a sense of what the person is seeing based purely on their brain responses. Uh, but fMRI gives you really just a snapshot in time. It gives you more or less an average. Its temporal resolution is really poor. So when you get a, a reconstructed image based on brain data from that context, really you're only getting kind of a sense of an average of a conversation that took place amongst a large number of neural populations. So I wanted to extend this into the temporal domain so that we could better understand that temporal evolution. So if, you know, kind of referring to the slides, if you want to advance to the second slide, and I'm going to start basic, I'm going to go back, I'm not sure where everybody is um, with respect to background and, and vision. So I'll start really basic. And if, you know, if, you, if you're familiar with this, just kind of bear with me for the moment. But so what you're looking at here on the left hand side is, you know, the information and environment in the form of electromagnetic energy is cast onto the back of the eye in the form of an image, an actual image is presented there. Um, and neurons in the retina will convert that image into a neural code, right? They'll begin to kind of translate that physical energy into um, a neural language. And then it'll transmit that information um, to a number of sites. Primarily, it'll hit lateral geniculate nucleus. So you can kind of see that those little colored nubs there in the middle of that representation. And then finally project that information to primary visual cortex. This is the first part of the brain that receives the majority of the visual input. And it does this in a way that's, that's retinotopically mapped. So you can think of this as neurons that are, you know, this is a coarse explanation. It's not 100% accurate, but neurons that are side by side in the retina are transmitting information to neurons that are side by side in the visual cortex. And a lot of ways it gets depicted is if you look over here on the right-hand side is kind of an image-based representation. So you have another schematic here where this brain is looking at the small child. There's an image of that child projected onto the back of the eyes. And that information, that pattern of information is mapped onto visual cortex. So you can kind of see the representation of the child on the back of the brain there. Um, and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't, it's important to note, it's not actually putting an image there. But what it does is it creates a pattern of activity over those neurons that very much resembles the image itself. And try to get a you know, better um, idea of that if you move on to the third slide here. Um, this is work that was done by Roger Tutel and colleagues a, a while ago, 19, uh, 1988, actually. 
And so what they did is they had uh, non-human primates um, looking at different visual patterns. Um, and in the brains of those primates, the visual cortex in particular, they injected a substance that would stain those neurons based on their activity. So if they were active, they would take up this stain. And so that you could remove the brain afterwards and kind of get a sense of which neurons were active. And so these non-human primates are looking at the pattern you're seeing over here on the right-hand side, just a series of concentric circles. Um, they're contrast flickering, very intense, very salient. And that's done for a period of time. And then afterwards, the brains are removed and um, the visual cortical side of that is kind of folded out on a flat map. So you're seeing that in the upper left corner. And that's a piece of the brain um, around calcarine sulcus. So I'll just orient you that to you orient you to that a little bit on the bottom there. So here we're looking at a human brain. Keep in mind that the data out there are from non-human primates. But calcarine sulcus is a, a sulcus that you can see in the medial view. I've highlighted it in red on that, fMRI, or that MRI version of the brain. And then the cartoon version to the left, or in the lower left here, is just another view of the calcarine if we've kind of opened it up so we can see in there. So you can kind of imagine that piece of cortex being removed out and flattened in the upper left. And what's really striking here is the pattern, the, the actual stimulus that the primate was looking at is literally stained onto that cortex. And again, that stain is taken up by neurons that are active. And so you're left with a pattern of activity that very much resembles the image itself. And that's important. That's, that's part, one of the main reasons why image reconstruction with fMRI research is, is so successful because it's doing it with you know, various filters that are you know, lar largely based in motion energy filters, but they're responding to different locations of images and then you map those filter responses onto the patterns that you're seeing in the brain. And you can very, um, you know, if you have a large enough um, sample of images, you can very much kind of pull out similar looking images and show this is what the person may have been looking at based on brain data is what makes it so successful, successful is this retinotopic mapping with the actual visual pattern that's in the brain. And so building on that, and again, we wanted to extend this into a temporal domain, um, but a little bit more background just to give you a sense of some of the modeling that we did, if you want to move forward here to, the, to slide four is we were to zoom in on any piece of cortex. So I've just kind of highlighted a region there with that green circle, you know, that little piece of the spoke of that concentric pattern. And we examine those neurons that are active. And there are many different types of neurons in primary visual cortex, but I'm gonna highlight the ones here um, that have specific response patterns are generally referred to as simple cells. And so if you look over here on the bottom right-hand side, is a color-coded representation of the excitatory and inhibitory zones of those neurons. That square would represent a region in space to which that neuron is tuned. So again, each of these neurons are selective to particular regions on the retina, which themselves are gonna be selective to different regions in the visual world. And that particular receptive field of that response characteristic is one that is going to be excited if a line stimulus for this particular example, like a bright line on a dark background or a dark line on a bright background, if that line is presented directly in the middle of that square space to which that neuron is responding, you'll get this big excitatory response, lots of action potentials. And if you move that stimulus slightly to the left or to the right, you're going to see that inhibitory response. So it has this preference for a particular type of stimulus um, at a very specific region in space. And some of the properties of those neurons are they're very selective for the width of those lines. We can think of this 
um, in more of a mathematical sense referred to as the spatial frequency. So in kind of the upper left corner there where it says spatial frequency selectivity, um, these neurons will exhibit different tuning characteristics. They'll have a preferred just line width, if you will. And if you move those and make them much thinner, more narrower, or much wider, you can see those responses falling off. So they have a preference for a particular size or a particular spatial frequency, as well as an orientation. So over here on the upper right-hand side, if the line is you know, directly oriented and aligned with the response preference of that neuron, it'll give it a large response, lots of action potentials. If you start to tilt that line more to the left or to the right, the response will fall off. And so, you know, there's preference for the size of the line or the spatial frequency, as well as its orientation. And a lot of other characteristics here. I'm just going to kind of keep it focused on spatial frequency and orientation, because that was a large basis of the, of the modeling that we were doing here. So if you want to move ahead to slide five. And so this really kind of characterizes um, the dimensionality of this problem. So again, if we revisit a brain that's looking at this image over here in the um, right-hand side, and we consider just a small piece of that image. Again, it's going to be mapped to a very specific region in visual cortex. I've highlighted that area in green. And within that region, we're going to have a wide variety of neurons or neural populations each selective to different spatial frequencies or line widths, as well as orientation. So we have this massive population, each one ready to process different featural elements with respect to their size and orientation, such that when they're activated, so if you move on to slide six, you'll get an activity pattern that's distributed over that neural population. So I've kind of just try to color code that where the more yellow the response, the more activity they are, and the more action potentials you have, and the lower response, the more blue it is. And so there's this pattern of response. There's a high-dimensional response that exists here. And we're trying to extract that out of human brains and then map that response characteristic to specific regions of an image such that we can get a sense of the code of which neural populations dominate the response. Because all of these are active, but they don't all contribute. They're competing for consciousness. They, they're, they're trying to get a sense of which one of these things are going to inform your conscious representation, which will ultimately inform the behaviors that you engage in. And so we're gonna to try to go in there and extract this information. And that was the base of it. And again, the idea here was to track this over time. So um, moving on to slide seven, this is really just, a slide for me to remind you to, to, to talk about the data a little bit. Um, so in the lab, we use primarily EEG or electroencephalography. Um, this is a non-invasive technique. Again, if you're familiar with it, just hang on a minute. Um, but it's, it's a, a macro scale recording. It records the electrical potentials on the scalp that arrive from large populations of neurons. So this doesn't give us information about individual neurons, but it gives us um, a summated response of a large number of neurons. But what that essentially does, because it's a sum, it gives us an opportunity to kind of um, break down or decompose that waveform into different variance types that are indicative of different neural populations. Um, so it enables us to kind of characterize different elements of that sum as an approximation to what different neural populations tune to different spatial frequencies and orientations are. So our participants came in and they viewed um, 80 different images, uh, repeated those images 30 times each. 
This enables us to build what's referred to as a visual evoked potential. And all that is, is if I record the brain's response to an image 30 different times, I just average across those 30 repetitions. So all the randomness will cancel out and the faithful neural response to that image will be preserved. And so we have one of those visually evoked potentials or VEPs for each of the 80 images. Um, and we did this for a number of electrodes, 54 to be specific. So that's the nature of the data that we're using, a brain response to each one of our images. And the mapping procedure, I don't want to get too nitty gritty in the details of if you'd like to ask um, questions, uh, definitely let me know. But I'll give you a course overview. Um, if you advance to slide eight, I'll give you kind of a general introduction to what this modeling is doing. There are two main parts. On the left-hand side is um, our encoder model. This is based on log Gabor filter power, and it's just a, a type of filter that resembles or will produce a response that resembles how those neurons in visual cortex respond with respect to spatial frequency and orientation. And so we did this at seven spatial frequencies or different sizes, um, 0 0.25, 0 0.5, 0 0.75, 1, 2, 4, and 8 cycles per degree. Um, the larger the number, the, the finer the detail that the filters are pulling out, the smaller the number, the more coarse it is. We also did this at 12 different orientations, but for simplicity for each scale, we averaged over orientation. So what we have is an encoder space where each one of our images is filtered seven different times. So I tried to kind of illustrate that down on the bottom left-hand side. Um, so the lower frequencies are giving you kind of much more of a blobby representation. Um, the higher frequencies are giving you a more fine-grained representation. But again, the idea is that each one of these Logabore filter responses is a model, a linear model, um, of uh, a prediction of how the underlying neural population would be responding with respect to contrast. So we get that. And so what we have is that filter response information for every single location in the image. So that's the first part. The second part on the right-hand side is decomposing the neural data. And we did this by way of time-resolved principal component analysis. Um, essentially, what we did was consider a range of data. So this example here just shows a little window of time, that little box, that little gray box there on the left-hand side to the right-hand side, so 41 milliseconds worth of data. And again, we're doing this for each electrode, and we have brain data for each one of our images. So we'll take all of that data and submit it to principal component analysis to kind of reduce the dimensionality and discover the lower dimensional um, dimensions that are explaining most of the variance. And lucky for us, that first dimension, that first principal component explained on average like 76% of the variance, a large amount of variance. So we stuck with that first principal component as a clean, noiseless model of the brain response. And we did that for each time point. Well, I should say in steps of five milliseconds. That's what that little matrix down on the bottom represents. We went in and stored that for each one of those time points. The final step was to then merge those and link them by way of linear mapping. We just essentially used linear regression. It did a phenomenal job in doing this mapping. We appealed to some of the nonlinear um, modeling, but it really didn't add much of anything for the cost of the computation involved. It didn't really increase um, the mapping accuracy all that much. So we just stuck with the linear operation. So that's just kind of a general overview of the process. Um, moving on to the ninth slide is a little more detailed representation. Just again, if you're interested in the nitty gritty bits, here it is. If not, just hang tight and we'll get to some of the results in a bit. 
So in the, in the upper left, we have just an example of the 80 images filtered at a particular scale, just to kind of simplify this process here. This particular example is eight cycles per degree. So it's just a fine scale representation. And we'll zoom in to a particular part of that. And so that's these little um, matrices you see over here. Think of those as pixel grids. And then we would focus in on a specific pixel. And so that's highlighted in red here. And so we would take the filter response at that pixel for each one of the 80 images and arrange that into an array. And then we would repeat that process for each one of the spatial frequencies. So we had seven of those total. We would then at a given time point an electrode take that first principal component. So again, we have variance accounted for for each one of those 80 images and essentially submit them to linear regression. From that time point, we could do two different types of mapping. Um, the first, which is again, more general, they call it an image general analysis, would consider the R2 or the regression of each one of those scales with that principal component at that time point for that electrode. And it would select the maximum. So the one that responded the most or had the highest relationship to the brain variance. And then we would map that by way of a color code to a corresponding location in the map and then repeat that process for all pixels. So each color here represents um, a pixel location across all images that was most explained by each one of those spatial frequencies. So we can kind of think of that as a stand-in for different neural populations that are selective to different spatial frequencies. The other one, the one I, I find more interesting is the image specific analysis. So that's over here on the left-hand side. It still worked on that same principle. So we have a regression between the principal component and each of the filter responses. Again, this is done pixel by pixel. And we would consider for each image, its distance to the regression fit from each one of those spatial scales and select the scale with the smallest residual error. So the one where the line was closest to that image. So in those little boxes, each point is an image. And again, each one of those plots represents a different spatial scale. The one with the smallest residual would be over here on the left-hand side, it would get a color code. We would map that to the corresponding location in a new map. And this would be done image by image. And you can kind of see it over there on the left-hand side. Okay, so some visuals of what this looks like, a couple examples. So if you move on to slide 10, um, these are data taken from a given participant um, for an example image. So all the way over there on the left-hand side, um, a bathroom scene, a couple of sinks and mirrors and towels and dispensers on the wall. Again, each one of these maps would be created for each one of 54 electrodes covering the back of the head. So this is kind of a flat map of those electrodes radiated out and you get one of these maps for each one. Um, and on the right hand side is a map for just a couple different electrodes, 75, 84, 92. No particular reason for selecting these. They're just giving examples of some of the variability that was observed across the scalp. And this example shows these maps at three different time points following stimulus onset. So at 80, uh, 85 milliseconds, 140 milliseconds, and then 270 milliseconds down on the bottom. So each row is a different time. And what's neat is you can kind of track one of these electrodes. So for example, electrode 75 here towards the middle, you can get a representation of the map. Again, each color tells you at that location, which model of a neuronal population was most active, most signifying 
and caring information about that content. So it gives you a sense of that distribution across neural populations to different spatial frequencies. And you can watch that evolution. So if you go from top down to bottom, you can see how that code is changing over time in a very short period of time, I might add. And the different ways in which that information is coded across those different electrodes. Um, slide 11, the next one down, just shows more examples, a couple other uh, stimulus uh, images that participants were looking at. This is for a specific electrode. I think it's electrode 90, I'm not sure. Uh, but each column here is just a different time point, 80, 160, and 260. And again, it's giving you a sense of how that code, that distribution um, across that image as far as how it's being tagged with respect to different spatial frequencies, how that's changing over time. And you get some nice unique signatures for each image. Um, so, you know, it's a great visualization, uh, but we wanted to quantify this to uh, try to learn something more about the nature of this code and how it evolves. So if you move on to slide 12, this looks more complicated than it is. Um, we did this quantification in two ways. So we wanted to come up with a metric, that kind of a summary statistic, that would give us a sense of the general bias in the representation across these different codes. We did that for the entire image. So that's in the, um, go all the way over here in the upper left. And then we also did the same analysis for specific regions, and that would be down on the bottom lower left. Essentially, all we did was for any given spatial frequency or a particular color, we would add up all the pixels that were tagged with that particular spatial frequency, divide it by the total number of pixels, give us a probability. We do that for each one of our scales, and we would do this for each time point. And again, this is happening for each electrode as well. The metric consisted of just taking a simple summed ratio. So over here on the upper right-hand side, we would take the sum of the probabilities of the lowest three frequencies and the sum of the probabilities of the highest three frequencies and take their ratio of high to low and then log 10 of that. And that value would be a representation of the relative bias of the relative shift in the population for lower frequencies to higher frequencies. Log base 10, so if it's, you know, if it's greater than zero, it would indicate um, much more activity encoding in the high spatial frequency region. And values below zero would be indicative of codes that were more dominated by low frequency um, signals or coding across the images. And so again, we would do this for the entire image, a global analysis, and then repeat that analysis for nine different windows across all of these images. And this analysis was carried out for each one of the images. And then last slide here, just kind of give you a, a summary of, of some of the um, findings that came out. Um, on the left-hand side would be kind of the, the global analysis considering the entire map together. So what you're looking at here on the x-axis is time. So again, we did this um, in five millisecond time steps. The y-axis is that um, log summed ratio. And the color code just kind of gives you a sense, the colder the color, the more low frequency biased it is, the warmer the color, the more high frequency biased it is. And you see this really interesting pattern, this really interesting transformation such that very early, around 50 milliseconds, everything starts out with a predominantly low frequency bias. And then gradually as time advances, moves towards high frequency bias. And this is indicative of kind of course defined processing. The brain starts out with low frequencies and then moves to high frequencies. Uh, but there's a range to which that transformation takes place. So sorry, each line here represents a different image. And so you can see a much spread out 
um, variability there depending on the image. But what what gets interesting is around 170 milliseconds, you see that transformation drop back down to a low frequency representation, pop back up to high, and then really dip back down again to low and then pop back up to high. So you've got these two kind of dips, this double dip pattern around 175 milliseconds and around 250 milliseconds where the image is kind of revisiting this low frequency state. Um, it, it's you know possibly indicative of recurrent processing, feedback processing, um, almost seeing like three waves, of course, to find. You see this initial low frequency to high frequency, and then low to high again, then low to high again, um, kind of this repeated pattern of analysis. Um, but what, what gets interesting is when you break it down by region and you start to see that there are different um, transformations in terms of the state of the image with respect to location. So in the upper portion of the image, which is that top row, I'm over on the right-hand side, um, you see that double dip, those frequencies uh, the dipping down at about 175 and 250 milliseconds. A similar pattern in the central portion of the image, so that'd be that middle row. But in the bottom row, the bottom part of the image is, is a, much more of a monotonic increase. And so you're seeing the image itself, depending on its location, is undergoing different types of transformations. So that this, this idea, this dogmatic view that, you know, the early response engages in this course to fine analysis, low frequencies first, followed by high frequencies, is, is really misleading because it's looking like, depending on where you are in the image, it's undergoing a different type of transformation. And once you get around 170 milliseconds, the code starts to change and move around, but it's not doing that uniformly across the image. It depends on what part of the image um, that's being processed. And, and you know, what, it, what it shows is that you know, different parts of the image um, are being emphasized differentially, um, depending on over time. I should have put figures up for the general image analysis. But what you ultimately see is that kind of this early ground plane um, emphasis, and then later more of a, a kind of a, a upper visual field um, emphasis where you, know, you kind of have this early ground plane and emphasis that's been linked in literature to more kind of navigation abilities very early. Again, that was a kind of like 50 milliseconds, 60 milliseconds post-stimulus onset. And then later around 250 milliseconds, you see that low frequency kicking up again in the upper portion of the visual field that's been linked with kind of like landmark organization. Um, but it basically giving you this idea that, you know, you really do have to think about how this early visual code maps onto high-level representations, not in the image in its entirety, but specific to particular regions. The brain is doing different things with that information such that in the upper visual field, certain neural populations are transmitting that information to navigational regions, navigational tasks. Um, whereas later on, um, upper visual fields getting mapped to different regions that are more emphasized on, on landmark recognition. And so we've got this kind of temporal divergence in terms of how the information is coded and at what point it's being sent to these higher level representations, which is really interesting and hasn't really been um, considered that way. Um, yeah, I think that that's that's about everything that I have. Um, hopefully, hopefully it wasn't too dull. No, it was amazing. Uh, this is such a amazing work to understand how how we perceive uh, the world. So thank you for that. I saw Serena, um, do you have a question? Uh, yes, so, so fa fascinating data, fascinating implications. I, um, I wanted to 
uh, first comment. Okay, so this is this is non-human primate data, and so you know we got to be careful with the time scales. Um, but in turn, what's fascinating about those time scales is what you were, where you where you concluded um, that were, you know, uh, there's complex uh, temporal behavior on the frequency of the image and and how that might lead to the ultimate perception. Um, you said early on in the talk uh, that the, the different regions would, and I like the phrase competing for consciousness. And, um, you know, so it's, it's, it's tempting to dive deeper into that. Um, in terms of the time scale, so it, of what it takes, and let's just construct an example, um, uh, say, you know, shopping behavior where we're scanning for images of what we might buy. And the time scale that we spend on any image before we can cast a judgment about whether we like it or not. And assuming that this time scale is, you know, somewhat representative, who knows about ape shopping behavior? But um, if it's, you know, on the same order, uh, what's interesting is, you know, the time scale of data was about a quarter of a second, and um, if that, um, you know taking into account also primary visual processing into whatever downstream processing that takes to render a judgment as to whether you're going to scroll down or click add to cart. Um, it's interesting that uh, within that time frame, there's this complex temporal behavior that you're seeing about, you know, low frequencies to high frequencies and, and whether there's particular detail or whether there's overall effect um, that, uh, you know, may get averaged in. And I guess that's where I'm getting to the question, whether there's any further uh, insights that you can comment on about whether the specific order gets averaged out or whether it's ultimately integrated into, you know, effect. Uh, curious thing about that is whether there's order dependence in um, how the later, later frequencies are judged or whether it is, you know, fully averaged. Uh, just uh, want to put it there for for a first comment. Any thoughts? Yeah, yeah I, I do. I have several. First, I, I do want to clarify, though. I apologize. Um, early on, I, you know, I let off with non-human uh, primate data just for the mapping. But with the data that you just saw coming out of the lab, this is all from humans. Oh, um, cool. And so, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's it's there. Um, yeah, you know, the time scale with this particular encoder with these um, logobores, they don't do very well past 300 milliseconds. You have to imagine that other encoders are, are, are taking, um, you know, taking charge. They've been mapped and the, the local correlations of filter responses no longer explain much. Um, but we, so, I mean, this this particular experiment, the task was almost just to keep participants from falling asleep. It, it's, it's a brutal experiment. Um, and it was just judging complexity. Um, but this this is the interesting question is, you know, the way I approach understanding perception is very much from a goal-oriented situation. Uh, and I try to back off experiments where something is presented, and then I ask the, participate, uh, the participant about it after the fact. We generally go into situations with something in mind, just like you said, I, you know, going in, I'm shopping, I have a, something in mind that I'm looking for. And so we've moved this. So this, again, this was a first step just to see, can we do this mapping? And ultimately, what we care about most and what we're working on now is, is looking at different goal-oriented behaviors. 
And so we've extended these studies onto experiments where participants are engaged in assessing um, the relative likelihood that they would engage in particular actions in the scene. Uh, we're having them assess the presence of objects. So we've tried to kind of split it from a task that involves the individual, more of an egocentric view, right? What would you do? How would you um, engage in this scene versus just what's in the scene? So you kind of have almost egocentric and exocentric. And so, I mean, we're, I'm just literally like the other week just sat down with these data. It took like uh, six months to gather it all. It's just, it was an awful experiment, four sessions, it just, just really brutal. Uh, but the early analyses are showing some really interesting differences in terms of this temporal evolution. Um, so kind of what I showed you here is still there. You see, still see signs of, you know, this, this kind of dipping pattern around 250 milliseconds where the low frequencies become more prominent. But we're ultimately trying to understand that with respect to task, with re I should say, with respect to the goal that the individual is, is engaged in to understand the nature of the compression, right? So the visual information tends to go, undergo a dimension reduction. You've got, you know, billions of responses starting out very early. And those get mapped to, again, particular high-level representations in a way that reduces the dimensionality in one sense and increases it in others. So we are focusing on that now. That was our ultimate goal. But, you know, this first step was to, to get a sense of can we, you know, can this type of mapping be successful? Um, can we learn anything from it? And then extend it to tasks that are involving, you know, to a certain extent, higher-level processing. And yet it is very fast. It's within a quarter of a second. Um, and I wish I could say we could get um, deeper temporal information out, but the problem with um, ERP's event-related potentials and EEG in general is once you get out to about 500, 600 milliseconds, the timing, the, the, the temporal locking between how the brain responds to the image starts to vary quite a bit. You start to get into the realm of when participants are solving a problem. Everybody, you know, engages in that and comes to that aha moment at different time points. So it gets really messy to try to tease that out. Um, so that's kind of the next step is to sort of decompose and pull out the low level physical representations to see if we can get a better handle at those high level cognitive um, variations. Um, I hope that addressed to a certain extent. What, what it did, said. and and I jumped right into the question, and I I, um, I certainly want to commend you on the tour de force of collecting the data. And yes, I, I can appreciate the experiments <laughs> must be awful, but um, I you know it's it it it's fascinating, and it and it leads to so many questions. For example, if you suddenly showed the uh, the subject, something that they completely recognized and thought quite a bit about, like a family member or something, where, where you know, whether there's feedback that's even noticeable on those early time scales in terms of pulling out, you know, with, whether there's an effect in the actual activation at the primary cortex or whether that really just happens much deeper. Yeah, yeah, that, that feedback question is... It, 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 these data that, that I showed you all, I mean, that, that those those two times, it certainly looks like there's some kind of recurrent process happening there. Um, and so, you know, once once we've gone through and mapped out the time course, the idea is then to, to you know, to take those reconstructions and then use them as actual stimuli and, you know, knock varying pieces out, jumble up the frequencies that are contributing to see whether or not that disrupts behavior. Um, there's some plans of doing... Um, TMS, but yeah, I haven't quite decided whether or not that's viable or not. 
Um, but yeah, there, there's a lot more to connect this back to the behavior to try to carve in, out that issue of the, the extent to which feedback modulation is is active at that point. Great, fascinating. I certainly look forward to more. I, I had a question, if, if it, that's okay. Um, thank you for a really um, clear presentation. It's a very complicated work, but you explained it really well. Um, and I just had a couple questions about um, sort of the, the spatial patterns that you saw. I think in, in one slide where you showed the, I think, 50-some-odd electrodes um, mm. on the occipital lobe, whether there was a spatial pattern or a gradient across those electrodes. Um, when looking at the pattern of spatial frequency sort of preferences for specific um, electrodes. And then I had another question um, about source localization. Given that you have 128 electrodes, whether you're able to do source localization and look at whether the spatial frequency preferences sort of line up with what you'd expect to see with dorsal stream uh, visual processing versus ventral stream. Yeah. Um, so the for this uh, this particular study, you know, there was a lot of Dimension reduction. So, so first, I'm going to answer just the the um, electrode distribution, the gradient, um, some of the gradient observations that you can see in those maps. Um, so we we didn't analyze that uh, because it really was just the one task. Um, with the the new data set that that we're looking at now, um, there are some topographical differences, um, which you know again, looking you know kind of building this slowly into source localization. Um, aligning those with the component fields, looking at those transition points and getting a sense that, you know, different sources are contributing here. We, we kind of ignored that for this this um, most previous paper, the one I just talked about. Um, but that one's going to become a, a, you know, very real um, scenario that we'll have to explore to get a sense of why we're seeing different topographic differences across those electrodes. Um, certainly, you know, different sources, different things become relevant. You have different tasks, different priorities. Um, source localization here, yeah, 128 will will definitely get it done. Um, I I like to do that more with 256 channels. Um, we do have that set up in the lab. That's awful. Um, and so we yeah we could do it for this, but we didn't gather any of the head models of our participants. I just wasn't thinking about a need to you know get a sense of where these signals are coming from. For me, it's more about understanding how something is computed as opposed to where it's coming from. Um, you know, EG is really designed to, to give us a sense of the temporal evolution, how signals are changing, um, and not so much about where they're coming from. And source localization will get you close, um, but it's really just kind of uh, confirming it. Uh, one thing I can say, though, is um, with these stimuli, just, you know, looking at scenes engaging in different sorts of categorical behaviors, we did source localize it in a different experiment, um, different task, different number of representations, different images. Um, and the, you know, the, the evolution across cortex very much mapped onto to what you would expect, um, given the, the temporal flow of information, you get that early kind of occipital activation followed through by ventral, and then it sweeps back again, then you hit the dorsal. So you see that same signature that you get. Well, you don't see that in fMRI. You see that with MEG, magnetoencephalography. Um, so it confirmed that that evolution. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, it would be nice to kind of get a better handle on, you know, to what extent is this following ventral or dorsal pathways. 
Um, but for us, you know, the main question here is that that computation that's taking place. Um, and granted, yeah, you know, we're getting into 100, 150 milliseconds. You know, where an electrode is doesn't mean it's, you know, directly recording from the cortex that's below it. The, the signal gets smeared out and we could be looking at responses that are coming from extra stride and, and other cortical sites. Um, but again, we're trying to just limit this to um, a sense of how particular regions are coded given these types of encoders, which ultimately contribute to some of the larger receptive field properties that as you move out into extra stride cortex. That's a very unsatisfying answer. I guess the short answer is, is no, we haven't, we haven't done that. And unfortunately we can't because we didn't get together the head model data from these participants. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Yep. Yeah, I have a question if I may. Sure. Yeah, so um, uh, one thing that your work kind of reminds me of is uh, a paper from a few years ago that discussed um, brain activity on a hypersphere. So kind of a clustering algorithm was used to show that the embedding space was perhaps higher dimensional. Uh, did you do any sort of analysis of that sort or perhaps would consider looking at that paper, which I've uh, shared here in the um, text chat as well as in the back channel for, for your convenience? Um, uh, as a way of perhaps understanding that the synchronicity perhaps exists in a higher dimensional space and that kind of, in, in the same way that you've made associations with behavior and the locality of neural activity at the sensory interface to neural activity at the computational interface, uh, could a uh, similar symmetry exist here between uh, perhaps uh, brain or thought patterns and the ability of individuals to have I don't know what else to call it. Sounds goofy, but like multi-dimensional thinking or, or something of that sort. So yeah, no, I, I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, it, actually, the biggest motivation of all of this was to map all of this in in, in a high-dimensional space. That 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 the, the primary motivation was to just do that. In fact, it was taking a you know an EEG signal that is surprisingly relatively low-dimensional compared to other things, and and increasing its dimensionality by adding all of these filter spaces. So. Yeah, the, the earlier work that kind of led to this was mapping these things into um, a high dimensional space and trying to understand whether or not, yeah, there's some hyperdimensional plane that can be fit across these or whether it's just some high dimensional set of equations that can describe how the vectors in that space are collapsing around one another. And, I, you know, I tend to think of that space as, as not existing on a plane, but a space that's constantly in flux. And so, we, you know, the, the major motivation for all of this was to, to take it from a state space perspective. And the idea is, you know, at any given point in time, given the responses of individual neurons that we're estimating with this technique, um, we have the state of this system. We don't have the complete dimensionality of it, of course. Um, but we have a, a reasonable approximation to the hyperdimensionality of that space. And then, yeah, with this new task, especially by asking participants to, you know, to what extent would you engage in these? And they had kind of a, a confidence or, or a likelihood scale um, that gives us a, a beautiful opportunity to map that and, and more or less converge those two spaces individual by individual. So yes, that's 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 exactly where we're headed with this. That's a, that's a great- Awesome. And, and, as, and a last follow-up question, perhaps uh, uh, noting on the topology of the situation. So um, locality as in terms of, you know, local uh, geometry or the, the mm -hmm. embedding space has a certain, um, I guess, uh, uh, dimension in terms of global systems, something like a cephalopod, like an octopus, 
has a donut-shaped brain. Uh, do you have any intuition about possible, um, I guess, uh, anal- not even analogies, maybe even first principles, but like for me, it's like, oh, you have the flow of neural activity. What does it mean for uh, neural activity to be orthogonal? Or, or does that mean that, for example, if you're on a torus, are you less likely to get stuck in recursive thinking or something yeah. of that sort? Some sort of uh, weird extrapolation. Yeah, I, I, I'll be. I have not thought about this in that context, but because you know, we we do have orthogonal dimensions here, you know. But at this scale, it literally is. I mean, the the filters themselves are orthogonal, um, so it's you know, it's just they're they're extracting different kinds of information, but. To the extent to which that that maps onto you know a thought process or a decision or a goal of the individual, um, that would be that would be really cool to map out. Um, the task we're employing right now, I don't know if that would that would enable us to do that, but that's that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a that's a that's an interesting idea. To to what extent are the constraints of you know the dimensionality of this neural space indicative of you know? orthogonality and, and behavioral or thought processes. Awesome. Thank you. I have a question. So um, this is kind of like maybe outside the scopes, uh, but I'm kind of curious to um, get your input. So like, you know how like there's certain, I, I for lack of a better word, like artifacts that humans experience when they see certain things. For example, um, when the tire starts turning and then when it gets really fast, it looks like it's spinning backwards. Do you think that like, I guess like the 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 pattern of how our brains see things may lead to such a, you know what I'm saying, such an a, experience? I, I do, yeah. So the 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 tire spinning that that you're only gonna see um, on film. Uh, that actually has to do with the the sampling rate of the cameras. Um, so as wheels are spinning around, they're going at a particular rate, and they're spinning at a rate that's faster than the sampling rate of the camera itself. So it starts to alias. Um, so you get this perception of it rotating backwards. Uh, but if you look at it in in real time with your eyes, you won't notice that. Our eyes are, are you know, especially in the periphery, are, are really good uh, temporal integrators. Um, but but this notion of just you know you know artifact or misperceptions, um, and, and this might be you know a deviation or a tangent to to what you're asking, um, but you know part of part of my interest in this are these instances of you know perceptual inferences that are unique to the individual, um, and to what extent do they experience them in a way that isn't necessarily um, aligned with what's actually happening in the moment. And those are, those are really curious instances. So you can think of it, I mean, well, I mean, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm rambling. Um, you can think of a lot of this as, you know, perception in and of itself is, is largely an illusion. You know, the brain is, you know, how we experience the world is not how the world is. I mean, you know, this kind of the, the, you know, the, the cliche way of looking at, you know, color doesn't exist. It's just different wavelengths of electromagnetic energy you know, bright and dark, that's a construct, that's something the brain makes up, you know, your notion of a shoe, you know, what is a shoe? I mean, a shoe in and of itself, it is physical, it's just a collection of matter, but you know, how we experience it and the knowledge we've linked with it is is, is a function of just that, all the associations that we've made. So our, our entire world is a construct. And, and so in a lot of ways, it's fragile. Um, and it's, it's, 
you know, if you look at it that way, it's, it's really interesting that we're able to do the intelligent things that we're able to do. But in any given moment, when you have a misperception, um, you know, again, that, that, that's hard to define. But the idea is that with, with understanding, you know, the evolution of the mapping of, of low-level structure to high-level structure, we might be able to kind of disentangle and understand when somebody makes a quote-unquote perceptual mistake. Why did you interpret information in that way um, relative to somebody else? And to what extent does that have to do with your priors, your previous experiences, um, and your experiences being different from others? Um, I start, you know, I really start, I think I've completely rambled on in a different direction. Is that getting close to what you were asking? How programmable are people? That's that's what that sounds like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I have a very, yeah, very pessimistic view. <laughs> it's uh, it's interesting because that's like the exact direction I was going because like uh, I'm just kind of really curious now that I've uh, seen your oh, by the way amazing presentation it was very helpful to have like slides that you said which slides you're on to you know follow presentation because I know nothing about this you know what I'm saying um okay we're good all right but th that's the direction no problem that's the direction I was going because I'm super curious on why like for example if I'm inebriated. I'm not right now, but if I was, I would see things different than if I was sober. You know what I'm saying? Like, like this is like spurring that curiosity. So, uh, hi, uh, Bruce. Hello. Great presentation. Yeah, I've been listening. Um, I've, I had my first question, I guess, like Dr. Ulu also observed that I was going to ask about source localization uh, that would probably make things a lot more easier to do uh, VEP responses. But that being answered, I do have a couple of questions for you. The first one is, um, um, why did you choose those specific frequencies? Um, is, there, is there any reason as to why they're selected? Uh, I know that, you know, basically, you know, if you take 0 0.25 or or at least like the figures that you have, they have kind of uh, reciprocals, multipl multiplicative mm -hmm. uh, reciprocals of each other. Is that the reason why? Uh, yeah, that, start that, with that one. Yeah, no, that, that that's a good question. Um, the the exact center frequencies. Um, well, let me let me say it. We we tried to tile um, the frequency space out to a, a point where you know the filter wasn't going to bleed over to the Nyquist limit. Um, so we wanted an even distribution. Most of those, with the exception of 0.75, are about an octave apart. Um, and a lot of the tuning, so if you remember those tuning curves, spatial frequency, um, an octave separation uh, between the peaks mostly ensures you're going to get kind of a unique population response. Granted, they're tails, and they'll, they'll, you know, there's going to be some correlated response in there. Um, but the, the centers more or less were a byproduct of trying to have a, a uniform um, equal sampling with respect to um, 0.75 was added because there was some variance in there that 0.5 and 1 weren't getting us. Um, so I added 0.75 just to try to. Gotcha. Uh, that makes sense. So my second question is um, on slide nine, you do have separate ways of reconstructing the image. One is, uh, I think, image specific, where you're actually calculating the residuals and fitting the point that actually um, 
is closest to the residual that you're calculating. Second one is image general analysis. And I'm just wondering in the image general analysis, if you actually try to consider crosstalk between different pixels, um, because that would give you an intuition or at least like an idea as to what the tuning curve that you're expecting. That makes yeah. sense. No, so, uh, you know, with, without getting too, too deep into it, but, um, there is, so again, keep in mind that, you know, one octave separates, but you know, the, the filter responses are correlated over a certain range. Um, and so part, and there's, there's two parts to this. I want to make sure I circle around to the, to the first part of your question. Um, but that tuning response by, by picking the max essentially says, I'm going to grab, um, the peak of the tuning curve for each one of those populations, even though just for example, if, you know, one cycle per degree was the max response to had a relatively large response, it was just generally lower. Um, so there, there is the potential for crosstalk, but yeah, we, we did this in a purely um, feed forward, non um, parallel uh, talking to one another way. Um, th there's certainly possibilities to incorporate population communication um, pooling, uh, you know, there's a lot of gain control operations that, that were incorporated into this, um, that would add a, an interesting nonlinear element, which would, you know, again, ideally give you potentially a more refined view of that communication. Um, that is what we're doing now. Um, this work where we're trying to understand the dimension reduction, the sparsification of information. So we've submitted this information to, um, a sparse net, a sparse coding operation that does take into consideration the crosstalk between these different filters and then trains them up to, you know, kind of choose the one that is most responsive while at the same time, even though it was highly correlated, turning down those that while they're responsive weren't necessarily contributing to the salient piece. Um, that's that started, started that running today. Um, so hopefully I'll know more in, in, in a couple of weeks. Great, thank you. Uh, Frank, go ahead. Uh, thanks. Uh, uh, yeah, thanks, uh, uh, Dr. Hansen. It's a uh, uh, very uh, interesting and uh, great explanation of your, your work. Uh, I am myself uh, a, uh, more on the engineering side. I uh, have a working experience with a, uh, image processing uh, algorithm mm -hmm. like the uh, PCA. Uh, 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 I worked on the uh, uh, a variant of that is called a, an MF. We we call it uh, is 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 uh, uh, it's in short for uh, non-negative matrix factorization. So the advantage of that is uh, instead of a uh, uh, we we say it's more feasible because it's non-negative. Give you non-negative basis unlike. Uh, uh, you know, PC and this SVD. But anyway, so I actually attended a few, uh, uh, quite quite a couple, uh, you know, uh, uh, psychology. I mean, at Harvard, Harvard Yard, you know, uh, William uh, William James Hall. Yeah, and then <laughs> David Hubel, a director, actor, directional detectors, cool stuff. So, so I I, I have basic questions. I mean, previous uh, 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 you know uh, friends here. Uh, uh, may ask. I, I just wanted to clarify. I got those answers. The uh, so f uh, the the array of uh, the electrodes. Uh, the uh, I guess it's the localization question again. So I see the uh, you highlighted the very uh, a small uh, region of the um, the uh, cortex study. So 
how how do they correspond to the you know the one hundred twenty eight uh, electrodes the uh, the distribution the the fifty four electrodes that we were looking at uh, fifty four yes uh-huh. yeah so it's 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 essentially the the entire back of the net uh so it's okay so so from like if you imagine um from the tips of your tops of your ears and kind of drawing a you know a semicircle around back so all of those electrodes i see but you're only capturing half of the field right right now no? yeah yeah so the, okay so um motivation for choosing those filters so there's a you know a good 15 20 year history on you know the nature of VEPs and you know to, to what in the, so VEPs just an ERP is just a, a visual stimulus stimulus that's visual um, and understanding so within that kind of fifty to one hundred and fifty millisecond window um, there are deflections or components uh, there's a triplet of you know different positivities and negativities um, and the extent of, to which those very um, very very um, compellingly map on to um, parts of the brain that are responding to the foveal part of the eye and then other parts that are more peripheral. Um, one in particular is a cruciform model. So it kind of shows that as the as you're going more dorsal on the head or more kind of ventral or more towards the back, you can get upper and lower visual field that map to the lower and the upper um, part of the calcarine. Um, and so the, those electrodes on the back really seem to capture, for the most part, a good majority of the retinotopic map as it's distributed across a large number of different areas. It's just not primary visual cortex that has retinotopic map. There are 16 or 17 other areas um, across the entire back of the head. So we restricted it to that because we were just largely interested in pieces of cortex that were responding directly to specific regions in space. Um, we haven't looked at any of the other frontal electrodes with respect to these encode. I see. Um, well, I probably would need to read up a lot of, on the background you said, uh, many years of history. So in terms of the image uh, selection that uh, uh, I see you have a, a picture on the slide seven that uh, you, uh, you mentioned uh, that uh, is from a, uh, uh, a standard library. Uh, it's more of, you know, nature towards, you know, uh, in, indoor. The, is it uh, 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 because of the pre- previous research or already some uh, 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 type of a typical uh, frequent, spatial frequency uh, building with this set of uh, library? Uh, yeah, image? these, right. So the, uh, the these images were, so it's, it, it's a little complicated. It's not a standard image selection. We have a, a database that we've kind of maintained about 2,500 images, wide variety of things, as you noted, you know, a good majority of them are outdoor, indoor, you know, combinations of carbon dirt and natural environment. Um, and we wanted to try to sample that set in a way, in a uniform way that was where each image would represent a particular um, location in a high dimensional space. So. So I'll give you the run through. Um, The images were projected into kind of an image state space. So they're vectorized, um, they're normalized, so they're all kind of on the unit circle um, in this high dimensional space. And then within that space, we try to uniformly sample so that we would get representative images uh, that had, you know, uh, know, 
were representative of particular types of content. We weren't selecting them based on spatial frequency distribution or anything like that. We just tried to have a representative image um, for each sort of subspace of that high dimensional image space. Um, and it turns out that that's actually very important um, to get the variation in the VEP. So if you, you know, kind of want to, let's see, what slide is it? Well, either slide seven or eight, but it's easier to see in an eight, um, excuse me, seven. Especially if you see that early variation in the VEPs around 100 milliseconds. This is a regression um, technique. Uh, so, it, you know, in order for it to do well, you need to have not only stable signals, but you need to have variance that's corresponding to the images. So what the algorithm shows is, you know, definitely the variance of the neural responses filter responses, but you need to have, you know, stable responses um, in order for it to do well. And, you know, and that's where the multiple repetitions of images come in um, to get a stable response. But if you end up with a collection of images, <coughs> excuse me, that are all relatively similar in terms of their structural content, they will all produce um, more or less the same deflection, the same magnitude. Now there'll be variance, there'll be range in there that that's potentially explainable. But because it's so small and, you know, EEG is a noisy measure, um, a lot of, lot of non-invasive brain measures are. Um, so if they're all exhibiting the same sort of component, even though there's a parametric variation in terms of the specific content that's in those images, it's much harder to explain because there's just so much noise layered on top of it. So it's very important to have a variety of images that will push those components to their extremes and being both positive and negative. Um, this technique doesn't work very well if you have a lot of images that are almost identical in terms of their content because the um, EEG signal, or I should say the VEP signature of that is so similar, even though there's a parametric variation, it's very small. And so you would need you know, upwards of 150, 200 repetitions to get a stable neural response. Um, hopefully that answered your question. I uh, appreciate it to uh, help me uh, much better to understand your work. Uh, just in terms of the uh, algorithm, uh, you mentioned uh, the the probably future interest to go into the more sophisticated uh, yeah i mean for example the eigen you know nonlinear uh, manifold learning or so i had uh, some exposure to that so uh, looking forward maybe i mean come back or uh, continue uh, discussion uh, on that it's uh, again it's fascinating work. oh by the way if i may uh, i have a <laughs> uh, one more question just to understand the you you mentioned the uh, at the from the last slides you said due to the location seems uh, there's a you're 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 drawing uh, inference maybe it's sending towards uh, different uh, uh, court uh, areas of, of uh, with you know different functionalities is that uh, uh, you, you, I, I so uh, for the lower right that's which which so if the figure which figure I should uh, corresponds to the uh, the lower right you know versus you know uh, which pays attention to the uh, 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 monotonic in you know, goes towards the high frequency uh, from your I just wanted to uh, correspond to uh, you know uh, what uh, you know in previous figures which one is the brain area that we are looking at. Um, so we're looking at slide 13, yeah? Yes, slide 13, uh, I, I'm asking uh, what 
which you know the lower right for example using this one if how should i you know map back to the the brain area that uh, uh oh, okay. or, yeah, so I mean, again, with with EEG, I mean, you know, you know, source like localization is good. It'll give you, a, you know, good coarse idea of where these are coming from. You know, as far as the specific brain region, you know, again, it's for for my interest here, it's 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 not all that informative in terms of where in the brain it is. It's more about the computation, what's actually taking place. Um, if you know, if you you could speculate and say, look, for in the you know in the lower right hand part of the visual field, then it's going to be in the upper left hand side of any particular retinotopic map within the brain. Now, which one of those are contributing to the signal? We can't really say for sure. Um, but if we know, again, the, the nature of that evolution, then it tells us something about the global, the population, the systems level analysis. Um, so given these data, there's no clear way to map it directly um, with confidence. You, you know, it can be speculative, but again, given that we know a lot of these electrodes do reflect different parts of um, the retinotopic map as it relates to the visual field, um, you can certainly, you know, with some degree of confidence, talk about, you know, regions of the upper left part of any retinotopic map in court. Great. Uh, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. I wanted to check with you, Bruce, um, how long you're still available to answer questions. I've got, yeah, I've got time, about another 15 minutes. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Okay, go ahead. Um, Chad, you joined the stage. And yeah. Excuse me, just one moment. I, sure. I would just like go to ahead. interject in here um, before we move over to the next question. I'm, I'm um, officially inviting women to come up on stage. We want to make your voice is welcome, and I know sometimes it can be intimidating to come up to a stage and women's voices may not always be honored or made space for. So this room is different, and we have lots of room and space for you. So please raise your hand, and I'm, I'm coming to the stage um, down to the audience to invite you. All right, thank you. Please go ahead. Thank you, Victoria. Yes, let's hear it, girls. So you, you kind of touched on this when when you said that there was some more basic patterns in the image um, and in the non-invasive measurement techniques, how there's a little bit more of just an inherent noise when you take those readings. Um, it, maybe it, you know, kind of, you implied an answer in, in my initial question, but I was wondering about when, if, if you show mandalas that are of, you know, N number of symmetry, if, if that was any interest when, you know, in the course of doing this research? Um, or is it not interesting? Like if something's just, um, you know, mirrored across a single plane, I mean. Yeah, I, you know, it, it, you know, so it's, it's actually interesting to me in a different context. Um, so, some of these earlier responses within like 50, 70, 80 milliseconds around that range, you know, th those are the ones that most people have argued with source localization and, and MRI guided source localization um, to be primarily primary visual cortex. Um, once you start get past that, you know, you still have primary, but you're starting to get some of the other extra cortical areas in there. But one of the challenges is, is again, kind of going back to Jeffrey's cruciform model of upper and lower banks of the calcarine upper and lower visual field 
is the polarity of the potential changes. So if it's upper visual field, it's negative. If it's lower visual field, it's positive. So if you have you know equal portions of content and they're identical, upper and lower, the, the, the signals themselves cancel. Well, the, the dipole signals in the brain cancel out. Now the brain's still responding, but the signal that EEG is recording tends to cancel. Um, whether or not that's exactly true, because there's different amounts of cortex devoted to the upper and lower visual field, um, actually hasn't been tested. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I've been dying to run a study where, you know, we, we can actually map that out to get a sense of, you know, to what extent can we find um, or expect this this cancellation as a function of that. And and hopefully within the next couple of months, link an eye tracker to it and do kind of fixation-based um, potentials to, you know, see whether or not that, that, that can... Un because it does tend to obscure um, what it is that you're trying to pull out of the image itself if you're equally activating upper and lower visual fields. So a perfectly symmetric pattern theoretically will do that, but we, we just don't know. And then what kind of physiological or cognitive phenomena cause you to choose a particular sample rate, maybe on the lower bound and upper bound of the spectrum? Uh, I'm sorry, sample rate with respect to... So I'm looking at these graphs and you've got um, about, oh. uh, looks like maybe, maybe 100, 200 samples across 300 milliseconds. So why, why, why this rough order of magnitude as far as the, just the sample rate? Um, the, the exact range is that for the, for these encoders, they, they don't predict much past 300 milliseconds. Um, fall flat. There's, there's no variance accounted for. We've done some other work, uh, particularly I've done this with Michelle Green, where we've looked at higher level um, encoders to try to pull out what's coming out of those later um, signals past 300 milliseconds. And we're successful. It's not a ton of variance, but it's reliable. It's robust. It shows up over and over again. Uh, but it, it is a small amount of variance. But getting into, you know, function tasks, getting a sense of, you know, what it is that an individual is going to be doing, um, semantic spaces. Um, trying to think of some of the other ones that we looked at. Um, that so it's like planning, out. or it's more like planning or cognition rather than just responding. Because I think maybe that's where some of the randomness comes in—that you're always fighting inattention. Yeah. So perhaps that's that's a kind of noise that you have to factor in for. Hi, I missed uh, the presentation, but and I'm going to go back and listen to the replay. But I just had a question about you mentioning the upper and lower visual fields. Did you say one was positive and one was negative and they cancel each other out? Well, yeah. So in terms of the, the EEG signal that we're measuring, um, so you'll get, if, if, if the image isn't presented, you got, you know, little pieces of something in the upper visual field. What you'll see on the on a VEP trace is a, is a negative component somewhere between 50 and 60 milliseconds. If you move it to the lower visual field, then you'll see a positive at the same point in time. So the question is if you have both equal activation in the upper and lower visual field because the signal, the, so it, the polarity of the, the neurons in the upper bank of the calcarine and the lower bank of the calcarine are opposite one another. And so if you activate them simultaneously, um, the dipole signal that's coming out will, will effectively cancel each other out. Now, the neurons are still active. They're still telling you things consciously, but what EEG is trying to record is getting canceled out. Do you know what activates them simultaneously? It would like be a stimulus. Yeah, yeah but I, be, I mean, mm. as far as what you're projecting, is there some things where they're not both activated simultaneously and sometimes they are? 
Well, you know, if it's if it's kind of a, a real world world situation, uh, you know, I guess you could imagine out you know on a walk in a field somewhere where the ground plane is extremely busy, lots of detail, lots of information. So you'll drive that upper bank of the calcarine um, dramatically. You have low frequency, high frequency neurons are all firing, whereas those that are tuned to the upper visual field, where it's just an open sky, um, you have just the lowest frequency. So the amount of activation won't be as strong. So the signal on the lower part of the visual field should be stronger, and then you'll see that. Um, so it really is just the content, the type of structure that's present in, in the image that determines to what extent they're available. Um, but, but that actually, to the extent that people have, you know, parametrically varied those things, that hasn't been done. So, you know, and I'm kind of speculating. Now, is it a depolarization or, and then a, a, a concentration thing, or is it like, oh my gosh, like the amount of motion in the fields, because I'm just wondering on, you know, like speaking in terms of a vortex, I don't know if you studied Walter Russell, where you have the gravitation and radiation going at, in opposition to each other. And it's, uh, yeah, go ahead. No, but is that what's the same thing that's going on with the upper and low visual fields? That's what I'm trying to ascertain. Yeah, think, think of it like this. So um, if I'm reading you right, um, so upper bank of the calcarine, um, is well, any, any cortical surface, you've got a lot of pyramidal neurons that kind of run perpendicular to cortical surface. So they're elongated. Um, and, and those are the neurons that, that contribute most to the EEG. So when they become activated, so when the neuron starts firing action potentials, um, the dendrites towards the top of the cortical surface, the apical dendrites, um, those will hyperpolarize. So there'll be negative charge in that area. And then at the base of the neuron or the basal dendrites, that's where the depolarization will happen. So you have positive charge there. And so current will flow from positive to negative and it creates this electrical field. And you get a whole bunch of those active at the same time, all near one another. Um, and so you have a large sum and that's usually what works its way up to the scalp that EEG is recording. So if you imagine, you know, that the, an upper, you know, a folding piece of, of cortex, you kind of take your hand and just fold it. Um, that upper bank, you've got neurons that are hyperpolarizing pointing down and depolarizing pointing up and then on the lower bank you have just the opposite and so as those two fields radiate out from one another they cancel one another out and and so eeg just doesn't record that hey uh nick at maria oh oh i'm sorry i didn't realize i was muted i'm sorry just so i just wanted to verify again so it's just the toroid essentially the toroid but that's what's the same thing in the um negative i mean i'm sorry upper and lower visual fields mm -hmm. yep oh great thank you so much yeah uh maria and nick please go ahead if you have a question Ladies first. Maria, um, do you want to ask something? Okay, maybe Maria uh, stepped away from her phone for a minute. So Nick, go ahead. Thank you. Yeah, so um, thank you very much for the presentation. I appreciate it very much. Um, your presentation made me think about um, robots basically mm. uh, strangely enough so um this is for the first time i'm seeing presentation like that my background has nothing to do with biology or uh, neurology or neuroscience for that matter 
Um, but um, you're trying to decipher the computation of the brain when you perceive uh, visual images. And all you're using is you're using statistics, you're using some physics, perhaps, and all these EEG signals and so on and so forth. So my question is very kind of, I mean, this is, you have very, uh, obviously, very limited um, uh, area of interest because, the you know, if you lay over the consciousness, how the brain makes sense of, of, of the visual field, it's uh, quite more complicated, perhaps. But my question to you is, do you believe, I mean, the progress in this area seems quite uh, amazing over the last, uh, you know, 10, 20 years. Do you believe that, you know, eventually uh, you don't need the biological substrate, the neurons are made obviously as a biological substrate. Do you think it will be possible for machines to, um, after you decipher even on more levels than you have done so far, machines will be able to perceive very similar to humans yes, uh, one day. And this is connected to um, artificial intelligence and so on and so forth. I'm curious, uh, what would you, what do you think? What do I think? Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, you know, the, the, the notion of consciousness and whether a machine has consciousness or whatever consciousness is, that, that's a fun conversation to have. Um, do I think it can be um, emulated or, you know, even built into it? Yeah, I, I, actually, I do think that um, the, the problem, though, is, you know, having a system such as ours, you know, the human brain is remarkable and it, it does so much so quickly and, and, you know, all of the intelligent behaviors that we engage in, um, you know, to get some machine that does that, it would have to be adaptable. You wouldn't be able to, to have it engage with fixed circuits, right? These would have to be circuits that can change and constantly constantly flex and adjust those things. And it would have to go through a lifetime of experience. I mean, you know, a lot of, a lot of attempts now to, to kind of build algorithms that try to mimic and, and simulate human thought, human behavior, decision-making, and so on and so forth. Um, you know, they're trained. They're tra trained over, you know, tremendous amounts of information um, but, you know, does, to, to what extent does that even approximate, you know, a lifetime's worth of learning? I mean, we're, we're, we're so remarkably good at what we do because we've had, you know, years and years of experience. We've engaged in so many different things. We've learned, you know, what works, what doesn't work. Um, and, you know, just where we are now, you know, just, you know, for, for me, you know, 46 years of experience. And I'm not going to say I'm remarkably intelligent, but that's a lot of training. Um, and to, to try to incorporate that and skip all of that and, and do, you know, build this machine that can do this and, and bypass, you know, X number of years of training. Um, that, that, that I'm less um, optimistic about that. that that's, a, that's a remarkable um, feat to overcome, as well as a, you know, a, a mechanical system that can be flexible and change. I mean, you can always code something to behave in a, in a certain way, but then that you're gonna have all kinds of lag time. Um, you'll need a piece of hardware that can flexibly adapt itself. And, and I do know some of that stuff is, is um, under development now, um, but that's, that, that's ultimately the, the major roadblock, not only that, but information transfer. Uh, but, you know, some of the um, kind of Joseph, Josephson Junction computing um, technologies that are coming out seem to have some promise there because they can flip and rotate and change themselves um, but the, the problem that I, I see in my colleagues who do this work um, 
is the, the memory element of it, right? You can get it to change and adjust and learn new things, but then it forgets the old things. Um, so, you know, I think there are a lot of challenges ahead of time, but yeah, if a system can be, you know, created such that it is adaptable and it changes and, and unfortunately it would have to go through, you know, years and years of training to approximate, um, yeah, you think, thank you. Oh, sorry. Did I cut you off? No, Bruce, just, uh, off? just think, Bruce, just, um, cause I'm going to, we're going to pass the, we're going to pass the mic next to Maria. And Maria, if you're still not there, then we're going to pass the mic over to Dr. Roshanak. Uh, Maria, are you there? All right, Dr. Roshanak, please take the mic. Welcome to the stage. Hi, thank you so much. I, um, I very much regret that I was late to this room and I'm so happy that replays are on so that I can go back and listen. And hi, Bruce, this Hello. is Roshanak. I did my graduate work actually in subcortical, subcortical visual system oscillations. Oh, that sounds very cool. Yeah, so the work that we did was uh, a long time ago, uh, but back in the day I worked with John Chapin and we were looking at um, really how oscillations could have a functional significance as was back in the day, sort of along the lines of Singer and Gray, yep. uh, not the same as the visual binding. Sorry. Oh, I was just agreeing. Yeah, I know. Yep. Mm -hmm. I'm familiar with it. Right. So not the same as the 40 Hertz visual binding, but rather uh, what we came up with was, so my work was in awake behaving rats. So this is again uh, with moving and real time dynamic stimuli. And we looked at different spatial frequencies. So the first thing we looked at was on off light dark. Um, and of course we found that there was the spontaneous oscillations coming uh, from the retina. And what we were talking about was immediately that there are um, perhaps two modes at least of, um, of processing uh, representation of visual stimuli. So very simply in the beginning with light dark uh, and then looking through the transformation from anesthetized to awake behaving and finding those bifurcations till we had 40 hertz. And then ultimately when we started to play with, you know, spatial frequencies, so on and so forth, what was very interesting, might be interesting to you, is the way that we ended up seeing the oscillations telegraphing that information on a local level of the population dynamics um, in a very sort of domino-like way so that we could start to see both global features of the visual scene through the uh, changes in the oscillatory signal that were very robust, you know, suppression and um, not suppression with light and dark, and then moving through this sort of network that was distributed starting from the retina and across the retina, so all the retina recipient areas, that would both allow for the functionality of these oscillations to process information that would go up through the parallel subcortical visual pathways, but also would allow for the sort of classic uh, local receptive field dynamics as well. And I'm wondering how that might in some way connect with what you're doing. Yeah, that you know, the, that is the yeah. The, I know the it's sexy, right? Oscillation. <laughs> this, yeah, it is. I mean, yeah, the, the, the synchronization stuff is it, it's beautiful. It's gorgeous, um, and it, it's not it, it's not directly folded into to to 
how we're doing this analysis now. Uh, but the potential is there. Some of the actually some of the earlier work that we were doing looked exactly at the oscillation at particular frequencies. Um, EG is tough to get entrainment, so it, you know it's nice. You know, microelectrodes you can kind of separate those things, but you, you do have to worry a lot about electrode bridging um, to get you know kind of the neural, neural oscillation coupling um, across the electrodes and that communication um, between those different, or at least electrodes picking up signals. Some um, but yeah, the, the potential is definitely there. Um, you know, I guess the one thing that always makes me nervous in that context is, you know, the best way to kind of pull out that oscillatory element is, is using, you know, an analysis that just does that, some kind of Fourier um, analysis that will, you know, it, it pull that oscillation out. And to what extent that actually um, mirrors the source of oscillations that you observed um, is challenging, right? Because it's 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 at a population level, so you can have you know say something you know moving around forty hertz, for just for example. It's not to say that there's a you know a specific neural population that's oscillating exactly at that frequency. It's almost like a volley principle where they're contributing at different rates that ultimately sum up to to that oscillation. Uh, but there's there's the definite potential to to do that here. And it's just with in any in, in a VEP uh, format. The, the best that we can do is kind of run a time frequency analysis and then and then try to look at the entrainment of those frequencies, which we haven't done. But um, yeah, no, that's it's that a would great be so idea. cool. <laughs> oh, it would be super cool. It would be so cool. <laughs> yeah. I hear you. Beautiful. Um, maybe I can connect with you offline too. That'd be really interesting. Yeah. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much. I'm glad you made it up to the stage. Yeah, I was like and, um, running through the paper yeah. at this beautiful line. I'm like, this is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so exciting. Yeah, and Maria has has messaged that she's not able to to um, speak right now, but she's really enjoying the room. So Katie, how about you? Are are you able to speak? If not, we'll pass it to Dr. Olu. But you are. You're. Hi, it's Katie speaking. I just wanted to say thank you so much. Um, I'm also sorry I was late to the room. I just got back from an appointment. Love seeing the collaboration um, in these rooms with Dr. Roshanath and Bruce connecting. Um, I really look forward to listening to the replay. My um, late boss worked on Vision in Sharks, um, Dr. Samuel Gruber, and was really did some of the foundational work in animals. So I'm excited to listen to the replay. But thank you so much. I'll pass it over to Dr. Olu. Right. Thank you, Katie. Dr. Olu, welcome. The mic is yours. Oh, I, I got my question in. Um, Dr. Hansen answered it uh, very eloquently before, so All right. I'm good. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right, then. Um, I think that we've more than used up your gracious 15 minutes, doctor. And <laughs> Would you like to make any closing statements? I can just say thank you. There are so many people messaging and saying how much they're interested in this. Um, several people from the audience are messaging and saying all the reasons why this is fascinating and how they're personally connecting with what you're sharing. Um, so, you know, even that beyond what you may see in the in the room chat. So thank you. Oh, no, thank you. I've, I've had a blast. This has been this has been super fun. So, yeah, I mean, thank you all for for inviting me. I, I, I love talking about this stuff. I could go on and on, but uh, but I guess, you know, we, we should call it. Uh, so the best careful. Say is, thank you for your questions. Yeah, we, we okay. yeah, we're yeah. <laughs> OK. We, we, all right, then. We can go all night. So don't. OK. Let's, 
<laughs> okay. Okay. You have to come back. back. You have to come back. Yes, please come back. Yeah. I'll yeah, make please. you go at home. Yep. We agree. Awesome. Okay, great. Okay. Yeah, we'll 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 arrange maybe that you come back in like a, a few months or like uh I'd love it. I'd love it. Perfect. This is fun. Right. Okay, so thank you everyone for uh, coming to the room today and uh, asking great questions, being interested and engaged. And special thanks today uh, to Dr. Bruce Hansen. It was such an honor having you and you uh, explained your quite complicated work so well. Uh, so really appreciate it. And yeah, again, always come back anytime. And um, yeah, please everyone, if you enjoyed this room today, follow the Science Society, click the greenhouse on the top and uh, follow. And we will have more rooms like this. Tomorrow morning, we will have actually a nuclear physicist joining us from Poland, Dr. Kutak, and he will tell us about his latest research about the interior of protons and how they are maximally entangled. And then um, later we will have uh, Dr. Huang uh, about this interesting new work, why smokers don't get um, that much lung cancer after all and uh, what happens um, with uh, his latest uh, publication. And then on Friday we'll have from Japan the team, um, Dr. Yanagisawa and Dr. Fukuma, reading pictures of mind's eyes. So maybe Bruce, you would like yes. to listen. <laughs> that will be at on Friday at 9 p.m. EST. So, yeah. Thank you, everyone. If you want to read up ahead of time about the rooms, uh, I can share the papers with you, uh, send you a PDF. So, just um, DM me in the back channel and I'll share it on Twitter. So thank you everyone. Have a good night. And again, special thanks to you, Bruce. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thanks, Bruce. Thank thanks you. everyone. Good night. Thank you. Bye. Happy Clubverse.